What if the speed of light was 30 miles an hour? What if Earth had two suns? Which cereal mascot would win in a what fight? What if everyone lived underground? What if, it rained what if money grew what on if trees? What if pigs could fly? I don't know if that would actually happen. It's much easier to store a unicycle than to store a horse. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Absurd Hypotheticals, the show we overthink dumb questions so you don't have to. I'm your host, Marcus Lehner, and I'm joined here today by Chris Yee and Ben Storms. Say hi, guys. Hey, I'm Chris. Hey, I'm Ben. Guys, we are we are basically in the heights of summer, so we're going to be tackling an important issue that's on everybody's minds. Everyone's thinking about this. Only thing you hear on the streets. What if there was an overnight ice age? What What happens overnight if things are too cold? That's what we're getting into today. Bad things, I assume. Yeah, generally not good ones. If, if it's not good things, this is going to be a pretty boring episode. <laughs> yeah, global warming, not so much of a concern, but uh, <laughs> there's going to be some bad stuff going on. Um, we'll, we'll get to it. But but first things first, for all of you, um, I'm not sure who would know this, meteorologists, geologists, science-inclined people. I guess that's a, a good section of our audience right there. But hey, we're already in an ice age, technically. We, the, the period we're in is an ice age. Ice ages are defined mostly by the presence of glaciers and ice sheets. So basically, because we still have ice at the North and the South Poles, we're in an ice age. When there's when we're not in an ice age, there's really not much ice, if any, at either of the poles of the Earth. It's all liquid water. We are currently in the Holocene Interglacial, a warmer period in an ice age. And before you start thinking that we got some room for global warming on a, on a planet-wide scale or aren't impacting things as much as, you know, the, the quote-unquote the media is saying... Know that we've postponed the next natural part of the glacial cycle from occurring 50,000 years from now to 500,000 years from now. So it's supposed to get warmer again naturally. Sorry, it's supposed to get colder again naturally in 50,000 years. But now that's postponed by 10 times that to 500,000 years from now. And that is usually what people are referring to when they say Ice Age is the, the previous glacial period or like past glacial periods. Yeah, exactly. Like the, the, the cold in the colds, like the, you know... The Ice Age definition is a bit loose, e- even by, like, loose science standards. <laughs> so we've, we've each gotten a slightly different interpretation for our pre-show discussion about exactly how we defined Ice Age. We're not using the, oh, we're already in one, nothing changes. That would be a pretty bad podcast. So we went with the more, uh, what you think of when you hear Ice Age. Like Things are cold. Ice Age, the meltdown type Ice Age. Or, I guess, the beginning of Ice Age, the meltdown, before it starts melting. <laughs> Uh, or that movie, The Day After Tomorrow, with, um, wait, who was that? Jake Gyllenhaal? Yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal. He was in yeah, that. And, yeah, and uh, the older guy. What's his name? Uh, Dennis, wait, no. Dustin? Quaid. Qu- Dennis, Dennis Quaid, there we go. Dennis Quaid. That sounds right. We're going to say he was in it, too. <laughs> That's accurate. I remember I remember watching Day After Tomorrow and really enjoying it, because I liked all the, you know, the effects and things, and I was like, oh, this movie's good, and then, like kind of watch it again with a little bit more like context i'm like oh they they ran away from the cold in that scene yeah <laughs> yeah and slammed no. the door on it like that would s- stop it <laughs> yeah it doesn't work that probably work that way did you guys watch that movie in school because we definitely watched that movie in school which i found very, really very i did not <laughs> yeah i don't remember why i think it was one of those like it's almost summer and the science teacher doesn't want to teach anymore situations mm. i think it got i think it got, like, got picked up by like the education things as like a you know, a dire warning about global, like, the effects of global impacts. Like, oh, but an exciting format for kids to enjoy. But, like, the movie was like, hey, glo- I forget how, I, was it just global warming was the thing? I there think was it was like, hey, I such, don't remember. There's suddenly, like, four worldwide hurricanes and everything is frozen. Like, 
it was a bit extra. <laughs> anyway, Ben, why don't you why don't you start us off? You know, how did you interpret your Ice Age? Yeah, so I kind of just I kind of just took it as for reasons that it will eventually become more you know obvious why exactly I did this. Just sort of a generally year round winter in terms of like the winter in the northeastern United States. So, you know, generally cold, decent amount of snow and stuff, but that's kind of, I just took it as year-round winter in a, you know, not Arctic, but relatively wintry area. And what I really looked at was, I tried to look at infrastructure, right? You know, how is this going to affect roads, buildings, bridges, things like that? Is it good? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, I mean, it's not great. So, talking about overnight, it's it's well maybe not like immediately super bad but well okay it's pretty bad in terms of like things breaking the cold you know extreme cold is obviously not good for for instance roads right and the winter will get more potholes and things because the the uh pavement itself will contract you'll get water that seeps in into cracks that then expands and makes them into bigger cracks you know things like that but it turns out that you know once we sort of get our feet under us in terms of all of this and, you know, build into this quote unquote ice age, it's actually not that bad because you can make, you know, roads that are designed to withstand very cold temperatures. There's many parts of the world where it's very cold that they do that. The problem is just when you have to have roads that can change between very cold and not very cold or very hot temperatures or whatever. Um, that's where you get into trouble because they need to be, you know, rigid for, uh, Wait, oh, God, why is that not on my nose? Oh, God, which direction is it? It just says rigid or flexible. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Wait, oh, no. Just take a guess. It could be right. Um, <laughs> guess, no one, no, one, no one who cares about science listens to this podcast. They have to be uh, flexible for the winter <laughs> and rigid for the summer. Civil engineers, is that right? <laughs> you're going you're gonna to need to be... You're going to need it to be flexible for if, if water's freezing so that it, the ice doesn't completely destroy, you know, water's going to crack and destroy your road. Yeah. But what Marcus said, the person who actually studied this. But yeah, so like assuming you know that it's always going to be extreme temperatures, you just use materials that are designed to withstand extreme temperatures, which is a pretty boring answer, it turns out. So I went past that pretty quickly and started looking at heat because when it's cold, you have to use heat. So really wanted to think, I wanted, wanted to figure out was how much more heat we're going to have to use, right? And the best data source I could find for this was just looking at the United States. It was a, a survey from the uh, U.S. Energy Information Administration called the Residential Energy Consumption Survey, which is basically just a, you know, a nationwide survey where they find out people's energy usage. That was pretty self-explanatory from the title of it, but you know what? It's okay. Across the entire United States... In terms of household energy usage, so just homes, overall, we use around 9.1 quadrillion BTUs of energy, and around 43% of that is on heating. But obviously, that is going to vary by region, and this is why I eventually wound up picking the Northeast United States. The survey also broke it down by climate region. Um, So it broke it out into very cold slash cold mixed humid Mixed dry slash hot dry. Don't know why those aren't two different things, but whatever. Hot, humid, and marine. And then split out the consumption, you know, in there. And it's things where, like, when you look at per household, you use around 94 BTUs per household in a very cold region as, as opposed to, like, 51 
in um, that mixed dry slash hot dry. So you have a um, a range, which makes sense because you're obviously having very different heat requirements there. So what I do is basically take that consumption in uh, very cold slash cold regions, which was mostly the Midwest and Northeastern United States. I assumed that in those regions, you're using your heat around a third of the year. That's not perfect, but that's, you know, I figured like October-ish to like Mar- February, like end of February, early March, like four months, you know, close enough. That's got to shift over a month. It, it, I'm always tricked by Christmas, like not being in the middle of winter. Yeah. Sorry, so I meant like, November, not October. Yeah. yeah. November, November, <laughs> February, that's four months. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then said that basically if you're using your heat a third of the year in those cold regions and you're using 94.2 BTUs per year, you'll be using three times that everywhere in the United States because everything is like those cold regions, which basically means that long story short, as a country, we're going to use about 3.6 times as much energy on heating as we currently do, which is kind of a big deal because roughly $73 billion is spent annually on heating. So that's going to be a a decent increase, you know, hitting your pocket and just you being cold, I guess. Um, So how do we fix this? How do we, how do we reduce this cost and just, you know, even beyond cost, just the, the ecological and whatnot impact of using that much more heat. And it turns out the answer unsurprisingly is insulation. And specifically, there is a sort of loose standard called uh, the passive house standard, which basically you take like what you think it was an insulated house where you have like, you know, the the cotton candy insulation, the walls and all that, all sorts of things. You just crank all that up to like 11. They are, you know, using triple ply windows everywhere. The houses are all like airtight with um, like insane like HVAC systems so they can remain airtight. They basically get to the point where they use roughly a tenth of the power usage for heating that a, you know, normally insulated house would. And like the really good ones can basically be heated almost without any additional heating. They can really just use sunlight and then just residual heat from body temperature slash electronics in the home. And you might be asking, that seems impossible under these sort of, you know, very cold conditions. You know, how can that actually, you know work in like a severe winter and the counterpoint i have to that is there is an a a antarctic research base called the princess elizabeth antarctica research base it was built in 2009 that actually does not have any sort of heating it is entirely using passive solar and just retained warmth from the uh systems in the building it actually has nine different layers in the construction. It's like, so there's stainless steel, foam, a silicone sealant, uh, laminate wood, low-density polystyrene, more laminate wood, craft paper, which feels like maybe he didn't have to, you know, specify that as his own layer. This is, this is the guy, this, this is the freaking engineer being like, Huh, these 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 insulation values. Did you know you can just add these? Right. Yeah. <laughs> if uh, you put two and two, you get four. <laughs> yep. An aluminum vapor barrier and uh felt. <laughs> Wool and felt. <laughs> um guys, you I, we don't have the budget for nine real layers. Alright, get craft paper and felt from the store as much as you yeah. can. 
it does it does feel kind of like bs right the back but to like, school sales are on <laughs> like two of the seven layers are craft paper and wool and felt it feels i don't know whatever to be fair the reason those are there for the most part is to seal in the water vapor which is very important so it is actually it does legitimately serve a purpose but it is still very funny to see around these all all these like you know high-tech construction materials like felt High-tech high tech is off. Like, engineering is a real fun combination of high-tech and worryingly low-tech. <laughs> I, I do like, they have a little descriptions of all the layers. I don't know if you will and felt one. The first line is, inspired by the iconic Mongolian yurts. Which, you know you're talking space edge technology when you bring up Mongolian yurts. <laughs> but yeah, this is this is a facility that, that it can house 16 scientists on, like, the north coast of Antarctica where there are... I think 190 mile per hour wind gusts at times, and it's does not need external heating. That's also a bold sale. Like, hey, thanks for designing our research. Thanks for designing our research facility uh, for Antarctica. By the way, we're just looking. We get, we got the guy signed up. We're looking for the heating system. Just uh, we don't see it in the drawings here. Oh no, there isn't one. <laughs> there isn't one yet. No, you'll be fine. No, you're not mistaken. <laughs> just turn the computers on and open the windows. Not literally, the shades. You know what I mean. Don't open the windows. Oh, God, don't open the if windows. You close, if you close the shades, you'll all die. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it is, I will say, they can. you can only use it in the summer. You know, there's stretches in Antarctica where there's not sunlight. You cannot live there then. It does not work. But yeah, so I guess overall, our homes obviously, you know, would not probably be that intense because we're not in Antarctica. But that's kind of just the proof is in the pudding. These, this passive home situation can actually work even in very intense uh, weather situations. So I guess it's not necessarily the most exciting uh, endpoint, but we can do it would it. suck at first. It would be really cold. We could do it. I can put a cherry on top with a fun fact I learned about. Uh, we are talking about AC and heating because uh, we had that big heat wave in, uh, well, freaking everywhere. Right. Well, probably a month ago now for everybody else. But... Uh, how? What percentage of homes in Germany do you think owns an air conditioner? It's less popular than here. Oh, I'm gonna say like eight percent. Um, I'm going to say I'm gonna say lower. I'm gonna say four percent. Three percent. Damn it! That's crazy. I I like you know cushy American lifestyle. I'm sure all our foreign listeners are like, yeah, uh huh. I don't get it. I don't get the thing. Crazy to me that this many people don't have ACs. There's still summer over there. It's still warm. It's still hot. They just be hot. And they that's what they do. Hot. There are places, um, I mean, even in uh, like the U.S., I think it's, I just Google it, Seattle, only like a third of households in Seattle have AC. Um, just because, same thing, they just don't need it. Oh, apparently it's up to 44%. People are getting more AC now. Global warming. Well, it sounds like in Germany, they do need it. They just don't. Well, yeah. Even England's like... Uh, it's 100 degrees outside. Uh, I gotta go get something. Yeah. <laughs> Except all that in a British accent. <laughs> right. We're not gonna try. It's not gonna <laughs> work well. Marcus, yeah. Marcus was tempted. I don't have a paragraph to read out in a dramatic voice, so I can't go into my English accent. <laughs> I was gonna say, Marcus, this is the only time I can think of that you didn't do a, like a British accent. The one time you needed to. <laughs> I, I'm, I gotta keep my deep cover of being an American intact. Your whole mm-hmm. perception of Marcus in this podcast is British. That's all you hear during his answer. Yep. <laughs> it's all British all the time. Anyway, that's what I have. It'd be cool at first, but we can figure it out. 
Uh, Chris. Me. Yeah. How to think about Uh, that Yeah, that's you, Chris. (laughs) Yeah, me. Uh, So my interpretation of the Ice Age was basically the same as how Ben did it. So basically just like it's winter year round, basically like the New England region version of winter, but it's like everywhere. And the thing I wanted to look at was food specifically, because if it's cold everywhere, then that means it's going to be really difficult to like grow crops and feed everyone and that's a problem so um i started looking into like how can we grow crops inside which is a topic that we've actually looked at before we've talked about this on the show before um but we haven't done it in a while and i figured sure let's talk about it again briefly so in episode 67 uh the question was i think we were trying to design an underwater city and ben's answer dealt with food And he looked into what's called vertical farming. So basically, they can like grow crops inside using LEDs. uh, And it's like they have a very controlled environment where they control the carbon levels and moisture levels. Um, It's all like computer controlled. And there are some advantages to this. So like you get more growing time uh, just because it doesn't depend on the seasons or like the daylight or anything. You can just do it throughout the day. So... The limiting factor of this was basically like an inefficiency in LEDs that like limited us from scaling it up. Uh, But uh, it was becoming like a more viable option as LEDs get more and more efficient as we go. And they are pretty efficient now. I'm not sure if we're at a point where we can scale up yet, but we're getting we're getting pretty close. So industry report on our hypotheticals, as LED technology improves, this option may become more viable. Yes. (laughs) And Ben looked specifically at a company called Terra Farms. I think they're a startup or something, but they they used 40 foot shipping containers. So like 40 by 8 by 8 shipping containers to do their vertical farming. And they said that one of these shipping containers could produce the same yield as three to five acres of farmland, which is pretty good. Now, um, I looked at like the amount of land that we actually use for agriculture. And according to ourworldindata.org, we use 12.6 billion acres of land for agriculture. And I wanted to see, could we support this amount of land through, like, vertical farming? And my sort of, like, perception of this question was that it'd be, like, kind of overnight. So, like, we wouldn't want to, like, building all these new buildings just for farming is kind of a really big effort. So if we can convert some of the buildings that we already have, that is a lot easier. And I looked towards warehouses. I specifically looked at Amazon warehouses at first. So Amazon has about 7,323 acres of warehouses in the U.S. Jeez. Yeah, it's a lot. If you convert that to square feet, that's around 319 million square feet. And I couldn't find specific heights for Amazon warehouses, but I did find a common warehouse clear height that's just like, it's well known, like, this is a common thing that people do, is 32 feet. And like a new trend is starting to be 36 feet, but I use 32 feet mainly just because that like cleanly fits our eight foot high shipping container in there. But if all these Amazon warehouses are this, uh, this height, that means that we can fit 
3,987,500 shipping containers in our Amazon warehouses alone, and we could produce the equivalent of up to 20 million acres of crop. Now, that's not nearly enough to produce the same amount that that we produce now, the 12.6 billion. Yeah, that number's smaller. Just yeah. a smidge <laughs> smaller. A little bit. I was only looking at the Amazon warehouses, which is only in the U.S., the majority of general like warehouses in general around the world, they're actually not in the U.S. But like at the end of 2020, uh, there were roughly 594,000 acres of warehouses worldwide, which is a lot more. <laughs> so just based on this, with using the 32 foot height again, that means that we could fit 312.5 million shipping containers, uh, and we could produce. The equivalent of up to 1.5 billion acres. Uh, still nowhere close to our 12.6 billion acres. But we're getting there, kind of, maybe. We just gotta sacrifice nine-tenths of the population. It's yeah, fine. It's fine. It's fine. But the thing is that 12.6 billion acres of agricultural land, only 23% of that is crops. The other 77% is actually used for livestock, like grazing and uh, like growing feed for the livestock. Uh, so it's not like actually directly feeding us. But how many cows can we grow in a shipping container? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's another future question once we clone things. I don't know. With advances <laughs> in LED technology. Yeah. <laughs> once LED technology advances far enough. The answer will be one. One cow. <laughs> <laughs> one cow. Yes, that's all. Maybe two. You can squish them. <laughs> but the thing about raising livestock is that they are we have we've talked about this in the past too they are actually pretty inefficient in terms of like energy for us at least so the majority of energy from the feed is actually consumed by the livestock and we only get a small fraction of the energy through their meat so that means that like the same amount of land agricultural land yields less energy for us so there's a thing called calorie retention which is basically the calories in edible meat over the calories in feed. So like chickens, they have a 20%, 27% calorie retention, which means that we lose 73% of energy through chickens when we eat chickens. Pigs have a 16% calorie retention. Cows only have a 7% calorie retention. So we lose 93% of the energy. Cows are very inefficient. And... If the world's actually switched to like a com completely plant-based diet, then that would mean that the agricultural land that we use, the, the agricultural land would reduce by 75% just to feed the same number of people. So instead of using 12.6 billion acres, we would only really need like 3 billion acres. Look, don't tell me I can save the housing, the climate, and the food crisis all just by stopping eating burgers. Because it's just not going to happen, Chris. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we're all pretty stubborn. I like my meat, but I don't know. Maybe it's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone can live on a nice stretch of land, have all the food they want, and the planet is fixed. Or we get some tasty steaks. Steaks, mmm. <laughs> so we actually already have... Through through our warehouses, we already have the 1.5 billion acres, so we just need another 1.5 billion. We're already halfway there. And the thing is, even though we can't grow like all of our normal crops anymore, there are certain types of crops that do grow in cold temperature pretty well. 
it depends on a, a property called winter hardiness. Um, so if something's more winter, winter hardy, then it, it grows better. And some crops can grow in temps, in temperatures as low as zero degrees Fahrenheit. And they typically fr- survive like normal winters. So some examples of this are collards, kale, and spinach. So uh, I looked at these three. And these like leafy greens in general, like these are pretty uh, nutrient dense in general. So like these are pretty good options for food. I looked actually specifically at spinach because that's the one that I, it was easiest to find the numbers. But currently we have 2.3 million acres dedicated to just growing spinach in the world. That's not enough for what we need, but that doesn't mean that we can just like we can just use the agricultural land that we're not using anymore for other stuff and grow spinach there uh, and kale and collards. And I said that our agricultural land was 23% of crops. That means that it's 2.7 billion acres of crops. So instead of everything else will have 2.7 billion acres of spinach and then if we want other stuff we can just grow them in our vertical farms in our shipping containers slash warehouses but have you considered the math that once you cook said spinach you're only gonna have like two acres of spinach (laughs) (laughs) kale doesn't shrink like that right i don't know oh kale absolutely shrinks like that it (laughs) shrinks it's not as bad as spinach but it definitely it's not as bad as spinach nothing is as bad as spinach yeah spinach is very bad but that's basically what we'll do. We'll we'll eat kale, spinach, collards, and then we'll vertical farm. I guess we won't have Amazon anymore. No more two day shipping. Actually, I've seen like options for overnight shipping recently. Like, I think if I ordered it right now, right now it's nine p.m. for us. I could get it by like seven a.m. tomorrow, which is pretty impressive. But that's not going to happen anymore because we need our our food. So <laughs> if they can ship me a burger, we're good. Yeah. <laughs> But that is my answer. It's possible. We can we can have food in the Ice Age, or at least my definition of the Ice Age. Marcus, what did you do? Uh, um, give me a second to get over because I'm just going to be eating kale for the rest of my Ice Age. My cold, <laughs> sad Ice Age life. I personally like <laughs> In my kale. triple insulated home. I don't, know why, I don't know why people don't like spinach and kale. I like spinach and kale. I'm, I am pro spinach and kale as well, yeah. I enjoy it. It's just I don't enjoy it that much. Anyway, first off, kind of my the way I interpreted the definition of ice age, because for me, I was, again, frustrated a little bit with the definition because it went between being like temperature based and ice sheet based uh, and seeing more about the ice sheet. So since we already have enough ice sheets to qualify for the ice age, I said, what if we went all the way and had 100 percent full ice sheet coverage over the whole world? So kind of the first question I want to look at is. If I'm covering the whole world in ice sheet, how thick do we make our theoretical ice sheet to make it, you know, quote unquote realistic? And so the ice sheets that we have on either pole, have I looked at, and I did not realize they're kind of on two opposite extremes. At the South Pole, Antarctica is covered with an ice sheet that averages over 7,000 feet thick. It's just ice for days. At the North Pole, the average thickness of the ice sheet at the North Pole is six to ten feet full stop like barely like not much taller than i am so the big difference of course being that the antarctic ice sheet sits on top of land and the north pole is you know over ocean that's really the main difference why one is so much thicker than the other because it doesn't really have anywhere it's not getting melted constantly underneath by the ocean and all that so it's not gravity because all the all the water 
or all the ice goes to the bottom of the earth. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, it's, it, yeah, the ice, you know, it just sinks to the bottom of the earth, and that's yeah. uh, and that's why the center of the earth is very, very cold. Right. <laughs> so, for for what I was doing in the end, it doesn't make too much difference exactly how thick we make our ice sheets. I kept the ones over the land in that in that seven thousand feet thick range, um, and I was kind of messing around seeing what happens to the ocean, and kind of the interesting bit I hit here is that. When water ex- freezes and expands, it exerts a lot of force because ice is, of course, uh, one of the few materials that expands when it freezes instead of sh- instead of becoming denser and shrinking. So ice expands about 9% compared to its liquid form. So this is why if you have, like, this was why when you have a frozen pipe in your house, it'll cause the pipe to burst and, you know, you know it'll cause, like, cracks and rocks and streets to, sw- to split. And the pressures on the ice is kind of crazy. Ice can expanding ice can exert pressures up to a hundred thousand psi, which is just basically inf- it's like basically infinite force. It's ridiculous. So if we just look at the ocean and just focus first, kind of on the horizontal. So as this ocean freezes, it needs to go to the. It's going to try and expand outwards. So on if we look at just say like the width of it. If it's expanding 9% in volume, the width is going to increase by uh, 3%. The specific, the Pacific Ocean, for example, is at 12,300 miles wide. So 3% of that, the ocean is going to be trying to push the shore back 184 miles. But of course, it won't really, of course, it won't really do that. It's not going to tear the Earth 184 miles asunder trying to make room for itself. What's going to happen is that that ice is going to be start being being forced up upwards and downwards like over the ocean like cuz you're going to get at the shorelines I still got my 7000 feet thick ice wall connected to rocks so all that ice is going to be pushed back towards the middle and it's going to be kind of just like we're not going to have a nice flat ice ocean what we're going to have is like a jagged mess of cracked and broken ice and towering you know cliffs and all these crazy like imagine you have like a thin sheet of ice and you smash it but scale that up to like ocean size as a whole it won't be actually like the tallest mountains you've ever done seen i was trying to see if i could get like a crazy height of the mountains but the amount of ice is going to be proportional to the uh how thick we make the ice sheet and so really it's only going to be on average like a nine percent uh, volume increase it's really only going to be even if you sh- shove it all together it's only gonna be about like five to six percent of however thick you make the ice sheet so if you make it, you know, if you make it a mile thick, you still only got like, you know, a few hundred foot mountains. You're not going up to like Everest levels or anything kind of interesting in that in that space. But if we take this, you know, if we if we take this overnight hypothetical and say, okay, everything freezes all at once. An interesting side effect of that is that the water un- of the, the water that's below the ice in the ocean isn't going to really have anywhere to go. And since water is not particularly compressible, it's going to be under as much pressure and exert back as much pressure as you put on it. Um, So if the water of the ocean is kind of trapped under that ice sheet, that 100,000 pounds of expanding pressure will be bottled up underneath that ice layer. So because it's happening overnight, the ice is not going to resist these pressures for very long. But that first day, when this first happens, you're going to get some excellent geysers. To put this amount of pressure in perspective, you know those uh, water cutting tools they have, like in workshops that like cut through metal with a water jet. Yes, mm-hmm. those operate at about ninety thousand psi. 
So you're going to have that amount of force just bottled up under the entire ocean, just ready to any crack in the ice, any split, just like start shooting out. So it, it, I guess it'd be a bad day to be one of the few people that happens to be on the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> then a uh, couple of couple small little things here just to wrap it up. Sadly, these the pressures, even this 100,000 pounds of pressure, is just under the threshold of causing the water to start forming different types of exotic ice. Um, we've talked about it a couple times in the podcast, but there's more than just... You can get different types of ice if you put water in, like, high pressure in different scenarios. There's, like, 13 or something types of ice that are all actually different from each other, and, like, they're formed differently, and it's kind of... They're all pretty cool, but... We need, like, we're, like, 90% of the way to have the pressures where we stop forming normal types of ice, which is a little sad. I want to see some cool ice happen again. And then kind of last thing I looked about, if we have all this ice covering all of the land, if we have this 7,000 feet thick layer of ice on the land, where's that, where's the ice come from? So just a quick calc here, if we take the depth of the Antarctic ice, the 7,000 feet, and assume that all land masses will be covered by a similar thickness of ice, uh, the total volume of ice we'd need is 74 million cubic miles of ice. So where are we going to get this water? We're going to get it from the ocean, of course, because that's where all our water is. So getting this much water from the ocean would actually lower the average ocean depth by 0.535 miles, or 2,800 feet. Um, So we're basically taking 23% of our ocean and applying it in ice form on top of our land. Which is kind of neat. I just want to do that math. That was just just for me, just for fun. (laughs) But yeah, that's what I got. We're gonna have a we're gonna have a big pressurized crackly ice ocean, and it's gonna be fun. And it may or may not split the Earth asunder. Cool. <laughs> and uh, then with that, with that, with that raucous applause from you two, I will uh, <laughs> move on to our would you rather question. Well, you can't you can't just say it may or may not split the Earth asunder. Take a side, dude. It's gonna tear the Earth asunder. <laughs> cool. All right, now I'm happy. Ben made a guess. I made a guess. Also under duress. But. Also under duress, yeah. <laughs> Mine was less high stakes than yours. Ben, are you ready for a would you rather? Yes. Would you rather sniff butts like a dog when you meet someone new or eat dog food every night for dinner? Uh, huh. Oh. Um, okay, does anyone... This is not me signing up for a fun fact. I just don't know. Why do dogs sniff butts? I do not know. Uh, I think it's for identification. Like, do they can tell? Like, they... Oh, yeah, they're, they're, they're super... They, like, can definitely tell the other dogs apart by that. Okay. And I think, like, butt stuff is, like, an easy... Like, a, a, an identifier, I think, for dogs. I, I'm assuming it's the same way. They're not actually sniffing, like, the butt. They're sniffing, like, the glands they use to, like, mark territory. I mean, it's their butt glands. Well, yeah, but it's not, like... They're not sniffing like... In another dog's anal snacks. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Well, okay. When your dog sniffs a butt, they can learn about another dog's identity, gender, gender, health, mood, diet, whether they've met before, and more. I... Okay. So... Do you gain these abilities in this hypothetical, <laughs> or do you just... <laughs> I, I want to answer that question, but first I want to I wanna say I love that in this list they include where they've met before as part of like the things they smelled, as though there's like... In a dog's butt smell, a record of everyone they've met, not that they might recognize the smell of the butt. Like, I like the idea that when a dog sits about, they get, like, a phone book of all the dogs they've interacted with. It's like a checklist. Have you met? Yes. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fart twice for no. <laughs> but no, yeah. I guess it really does depend on 
if you get these abilities. Because some of those would be really nice to know, right? Although I'd imagine that if you if people don't know you and you've sniffed their boat butt and you're trying to figure out their emotional state, it's gonna be confused and disgusted most of the time. <laughs> I mean, really the only thing like except like diet and I guess what what if you recognize them, you know if you've met before. Really you just can't tell people's diet. Like you can tell their identity, gender, health, and mood generally. Health maybe not so much, but like identity, gender, mood you can get from reading someone's face. Yeah. You can be like, Yup, that's a dude. Yep. And I know that dude and he's he looks pissed because <laughs> I just <laughs> Right. Exactly, yeah. Okay, let's talk about eating dog food. Have either of you ever eaten dog food? No. No. Have you? No, I don't think so. I think I, I think I tried the cat food when I was a kid, but I don't remember it. I think I might is have. Is it eaten... like safe for us or not? Is dog? Yeah, it's probably food safe for humans to eat. It's probably safe, just not good. Dog food isn't designed for the unique nutrition needs of humans, though it is made from ingredients that are technically safe for humans to eat. Right. So, like, thus, it's not inherently toxic for humans and may be safe in an emergency situation. Yeah. It's just not healthy or ideal. Yeah, you couldn't, like, live on just dog food because it doesn't have all the stuff that we need, probably. But it was just dinner, right? You're having dog food for dinner? So you can have other things for lunch and breakfast. But God, your last meal of the day has to be dog food every day. Do you think there's going to be one you find that's good? So I do think, actually, I may have eaten, like, a milk bone when I was a kid. But I don't know how much that counts. Those are kind of just like crappy cookies. Oh, but those do count. I think that, they I count. Is that dog I food? dog treats dog food. Yeah. I think so. Would you... So, okay. If they didn't count, do you guys think you would eat like like wet food? Are we allowed to like heat it up? Or it, do we have is to that better? Does that make it better? <laughs> is that then better is a very good question. Like a so, yes. it's kind of. I don't know. But, it's, but the flavors are going to be... Mind. Flavors are more intense when something's been heated. Well, I don't know. Like, what does dog? Is it like salty, like a stew or a savory, or is what? I don't know. <laughs> what is it? What? What does? All right, let's Google what this dog food tastes like. I imagine it would taste something like a stew, just because it looks like a stew and it has like meat and stuff in it. I did it. Six days of eating dog food. Okay, so kittle, dry and gritty. It has a nutty, slightly sour taste, like a healthy breakfast cereal. Uh, halfway through the bowl, my jaw gets tired. Dog food requires a lot of heavy duty crunching. So that's a dry. So dry. It's like a it's like a whole food cereal kind of right, but with meat in it probably. That's not that bad. That's not awful, I guess. I mean, yeah, it's it's not bad. Chunky colossal find. chicken dinner, chicken peas, <laughs> carrots, and gravy. I don't I don't know. I mean, they do also like have all the like. Oh, what your dog loves is cheese and bacon flavored thing. Oh, so apparently, apparently kibble is not uh, sterile. So there have been many cases of salmonella con- contamination in kibble. So maybe we don't eat kibble. Yeah, but there are a lot of other options. I mean, you got to think, you got to, you got to, you got to look at it like you're going to have the best option of dog food to eat. Like once you're doing this, one, it's going to be, okay, which one of these doesn't taste, taste the least like ass? And two, which one of these can I pretend is real food in social situations? Like... If you're having wet, like if you're having wet food, you're gonna be like, oh yeah, no, I just make like a, I made myself like a, you know, I prepped a bunch of stew this week, and so that's that's what I'm eating. Yeah. You know, you don't tell people it's dog food. until you know them very well that all you eat is. But only, oh, it's for, only for dinner. dinner. It's, it's only for yeah. dinner. It's only for dinner. It's only for dinner. Which isn't that bad. 
it's only for dinner. I like you go European style. You do big lunch, small dinner. I mean, I feel like I feel like you have to have a full serving though. Yeah, I mean, yeah. but it's just for dinner. I mean, yeah, it is just have, for dinner. You can, so you can have enjoy good breakfast food. and lunches. Yeah, you know, can you eat? Can you eat four to five hundred calories of dog food for dinner? Can you make yourself do that? I mean, I don't know what it tastes like, so I don't know. <laughs> From this article, it definitely sounds like really crappy canned food, basically. Yeah, which I think I could do. You're gonna eventually get a craving for it once your bo- once you once you've done it a few times. It's definitely gonna be like, oh, if you're hungry in the evening, your body associates that like that fulfilling that need with the dog food. Eventually, you'll start craving it. Apparently, PetSmart's like fancy in-house brand, Simply Nourish, has a chicken and beef stew, a tuna pasta casserole. And a chicken and carrot bisque with pumpkin and quail egg. What? <laughs> what? That's that's like marketing for the person, though. Does it actually taste like that? I don't know. I mean... You don't say something tastes like quail egg if it doesn't taste like <laughs> quail egg. Uh, apparently, the bisque was good. Oh, okay. Yeah, so there are good ones out there. Yeah. Now, for the, the butt-sniffing thing, you said you have to do it for everyone you meet? Yeah. When you meet someone new. Not every time you see them, but when you meet someone new. Oh, so whether you've met them or not is irrelevant in that information that you uh, that you get. Oh right, yeah. Oh no. Yeah, if you're sniffing your butt, if, if you're sniffing their butt, you have not met them yet. Okay. So it's um, only people who you haven't met makes it maybe worse. Is there like a way or like a method of like what would your method be? You can't subtly sniff someone's butt. There's no <laughs> way. Yeah, all the dogs in the photos I see as butt sniffing are not subtle. They're like right up in there. right, like. And do you have to do it, like, right away? Is that the first thing you have to do? Or can you, like, as long Basically, as the interaction is happening? That's what dogs do. You can bark at them first if you want to. <laughs> okay. Like, yeah, you can, like, maybe get to, like, close to handshake. Like, you can maybe do a quick handshake, but you gotta be in there. I, I like the idea that you, like, grab their hand for a handshake, shake once, and then, like, pull them forward and bend down. Like... It's like all in one is motion. There, is there a move? Is there is there a wrestling move you can learn that converts a hug into a butt sniff? Um, that's pretty like a difficult. Suplex, kind of. Like if you can get, if you can like have just an overly aggressive, friendly hug for new people you meet, and then you just like get your butt sniff somewhere in there where they're like, "What the fuck was that?" And you're like, "Oh, sorry, I have this really, I really, I'm, you know, you know, some people are huggers. I am a semi suplexer." I'm sorry. There is no way. There is no way to conceal sniffing someone's butt during a hug. <laughs> no, no, no. You have to. You have to. You have to convert the hug into some kind of even more distracting thing, <laughs> like a wrestling move. I see. And you just happen to do this to every single person you meet. It's your thing. <laughs> it's your thing. Once you do. Once you've done it to a bunch of people and they know you, they'd be like, "Oh no, that's just his thing." Honestly, I'm not gonna lie. This feels worse than being the butt sniffing guy. <laughs> because you are also, eventually, people are going to pick up on the fact that as you do this, you're taking a whiff. <laughs> and then you're the guy who does the resting thing and sniffs butts. So the la- I think the last piece of the puzzle here is how often do I meet new people versus how often do I eat dinner? <laughs> I don't meet a lot of new people. I mean, what's considered meeting? Someone you, someone you like have Introduce a one-on-one. I would say that's yeah. it, right? If you introduce yourself, it counts as meeting them. Okay. It's very few new people. I yeah, think. it doesn't happen a lot. But I mean, like, think about, like, I don't know, starting a new job. Yeah. Is there a, vir- is there a virtual loop around where you can meet them on s- on teams and then, like, 
oh, now you've met them, so you don't have to sniff them when you see them in person for real. <laughs> I don't think that counts. I don't. Or think do you that see counts. someone on a virtual meeting? And you're like, oh, hey, what's your name? And then you introduce yourself, and you're like, hold on, what's your address? <laughs> I'm coming over. Like, I don't think you can ever change jobs. But even that won't work because because also people get hired and you have to introduce yourself. Like, you're always going to have to sniff. Yeah, no, it's, in it's, a it's, professional I mean, setting. you could find a job. You could find a job where you're like basically just working by yourself. I think. I guess it's like IT something. Yeah, I mean. Anyway, I think I think I think we're ready. I think we can do final. Uh, this seems super easy. Final decisions here. Well, Chris, if it's so easy, what did you pick? So I'm gonna pick the dog food because I mean, yeah, I I eat dinner way more often than I meet new people. But when I do meet new people, it's gonna be I'm basically just not like you're never every gonna new see person. them again. Yeah, they're always going to hate me. So The more people that don't ever want to see you again, increase the number of new people you have to meet. Yeah, whereas I don't think the dog food... I mean, I've never tried it, but I don't think the dog food is actually going to taste that bad. And there are certain ones that you can hide and make it look like normal food, and no one will question it. So I'm going dog food. I... God... This pains me because you know how much of a food person I am. I am also <laughs> I going dog food. You can still because... enjoy normal food, though. Yeah, but, like, dinner's the best meal. I love cooking dinner. You can't, like, cook a lot. La- I mean, you can kind False. of cook a lot. La- Breakfast is the best me- meal. Not to cook. Well, I don't cook. Well, okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Can you please start cooking, Chris? <laughs> you should really start cooking. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> we tried. That was a good effort. Good effort. Yeah, I just yeah the the social ramifications of God, it's it's insane to me that the social ramifications of being the guy who eats dog food haven't even entered my mind because of how bad the social social ramifications of being the guy who still spots are. <laughs> like, I can deal with being the guy who eats dog food. I cannot deal with the guy being the guy who sniffs butts. That's untenable. I mean, it could be like misconstrued as like sexual harassment right, or something. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or you know. Construed. Or, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It is. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. No. I'm in. I'm in. I'm in the same boat as well. Um. I think. I think you might even just find a good. Like you just got to find one good dog food and you just, you just eat that and uh, apparently get too much way too much vitamin A that might cause later health problems. But there haven't really been studies on it because not many people eat only dog food. So there you have it. If you enjoyed this episode um, and want to, or you want to, you have you know the chance at hearing us eat weird things not dog food we're not doing that one but we do shit like that in our uh on our monthly bonus episodes which are at our patreon hidden behind the paywall www.patreon.com slash absurd hypotheticals uh you become a patron it's just one dollar a month you get access to all the bonus content lots of good things in there if you have a cool idea for a hypothetical that just popped in your head while you're listening here or just pops in your head ever send it to us we'd love to get listener questions if you are listening if you're listening slash watching on youtube you can throw it right in the comments or send us an email is the next best way absurd hypotheticals at gmail.com and as always whatever platform you are on leaving a review can only help the show grow and become more successful which results in the a better podcast for everybody um so leave us a review five stars is the is the best number of stars as long as that is the maximum on the scale you're using if you're on some weird podcast player that has 10 stars available all 10 don't go for five five wouldn't look so good on that platform just max out the stars kind of what we're asking for here yeah all the stars or all the shapes thumbs up hearts apples tomatoes whatever they are throw them all in there 
And then, uh, ah, I was going to say next week's episode, but uh, we have we have had a change, a, a schedule change up. You may have noticed. This will probably be one of the things we talk about in our, in our behind, our, not behind the scenes, our Patreon episodes, are, as what they're called now, our fireside chats. Um, we have switched our schedule to bi-weekly. It is not your podcast player broken. We've been doing it for some number of weeks now. Our schedule got a little bit mixed up with uh, all of the real life adult stuff happening in our, in our respective lives. So as a result of those, generally, we are switching the podcast for the foreseeable future to a bi-weekly podcast rather than a weekly podcast. If you guys just all subscribe to our Patreon and suddenly we can quit our jobs, it will go back to weekly, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> but for now, in two weeks' time, on Monday, you can join us for next episode's question. Which movie heist crew would run the best restaurant? Mm-hmm.